1: My history can beat up your politics, wherever you get podcasts. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Episode 63 of our Civil War Podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast.
1: At 2 o'clock in the morning of May twenty-fifth, 1861, two U.S. Army officers reached Hayfields, a large estate in the Maryland countryside. They entered the manor house that was the home of John Merriman, the estate's owner, surprising him in his bed, and arrested him. They then transported Merriman to Baltimore and he was imprisoned in Fort McHenry.
0: John Merriman was an important man in Maryland, the descendant of one of the state's oldest and most distinguished families. He was a substantial landowner, a gentleman farmer, a slave owner, a businessman, a politician, and he was also an officer in a militia company of cavalry. It was in that capacity that a month before, in April, that Merriman had led men in burning railroad bridges and cutting telegraph wires in an attempt to prevent federal troops from crossing Maryland on their way to reinforce Washington, D.C.
1: John Merriman's arrest led to a dramatic confrontation between Abraham Lincoln, the President of the United States, and Roger Brooke Taney, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. In the tension-filled spring of 1861, Taney would use his judicial authority to challenge the president's powers as commander-in-chief. At stake was Lincoln's executive power to combat the massive rebellion that was breaking apart the nation. In his book, The Body of John Merriman, Abraham Lincoln, and the Suspension of Habeas Corpus, Brian McGinney says that, quote, A century and a half later, the challenge issued by Taney and the response given to it by Lincoln, remain one of the most critical but poorly understood chapters in American history. End quote.
0: Neither Ridge nor I are legal scholars, but since this confrontation between Taney and Lincoln was so significant, what we'll try to do is use this episode of the podcast to walk y'all through the basic, essential points of the case and show why it's so important in the story of the Civil War.
1: You guys will recall how, back in episodes 37 and 38, we talked about how important the border state of Maryland was with regard to the security of the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Tracy and I talked about the fact that, in the early days of the war, the District of Columbia was seen as being exceedingly vulnerable to an attack that secessionists might launch from Virginia. That's because at the start of the war, the capital city was defended only by a pitifully small force of regular army soldiers, marines, and some local militia, and so Washington was gripped with a siege mentality, and there was an immediate pressing need to rush troops from the loyal northern states to reinforce the capital's defenders, and any such reinforcements would have to cross through the border state of Maryland in order to get to Washington.
0: On April eighteenth, four days after the fall of Fort Sumter and three days after Abraham Lincoln's call for 75,000 militia to put down the rebellion, a regiment of Pennsylvania volunteers arrived in Baltimore on their way to Washington, D.C. As the Pennsylvanians switched trains in Baltimore, a mob screamed insults and threw bricks at them.
1: The next day, April nineteenth, another regiment traveling to Washington entered Baltimore. That unit, the 6th Massachusetts, was also attacked by pro-secession hooligans while it was switching trains, but this time the mob violence led to shots being fired, and when the incident was over, both soldiers and civilians lay dead and wounded in the streets of Baltimore. After that deadly riot, Maryland flamed with passion, and to prevent more northern regiments from entering Baltimore, the city's mayor and chief of police, with the reluctant approval of the governor ordered the destruction of bridges on the railroad lines coming from Philadelphia and Harrisburg. Telegraph lines were also torn down, and so Washington, D.C. was cut off from the loyal states of the North.
0: It was during this time, in the days immediately following the Baltimore riot, that John Merriman led some men of his militia company in putting at least six railroad bridges to the torch, and also in cutting telegraph wires. But despite such efforts, more northern troops managed to reach the nation's capital. On April 25th, a train carrying the 7th New York arrived in Washington, followed by more trains bearing additional regiments from loyal northern states. They had arrived by a roundabout route via Annapolis, a route opened by the Massachusetts political general, Benjamin Butler.
1: Thousands of northern soldiers poured into Washington, and although Baltimore remained tense, the buildup of Union military strength along Maryland's rail lines and a declaration of martial law in the city on May 13th served to stifle pro-secession activities. Nevertheless, when the governor, Thomas Hicks, who favored neutrality, was pressured into calling the legislature into session, Abraham Lincoln was anxious lest that body vote for secession, and the president considered sending troops to arrest the legislators but in the end, he thought better of such an action. And to Lincoln's surprise, the Maryland legislature proved to be all bark and no bite, as it refused to consider an ordinance of secession or to call a convention to do so. In effect, the legislators decided to follow Governor Hicks' preferred course of neutrality. But realistically, given Maryland's strategic location, and considering the thousands of Union soldiers stationed in the state or passing through it, Neutrality between North and South was an impossible dream. Pro-Union candidates won all six seats in a special congressional election held in Maryland in June, and by that time the state had also organized four regiments to fight for the Union. Marylanders who wanted to fight for the Confederacy had to go south to Virginia to organize Maryland regiments on Confederate soil.
0: But during the anxious, uncertain days when Maryland flamed with pro-secession passion and Washington seemed to be in peril, Abraham Lincoln made a controversial decision. On April twenty seventh, Lincoln wrote a letter to Winfield Scott, the old general-in-chief of the Federal Armies. In that letter, Lincoln said that if resistance along the military line between Washington and Philadelphia made it, quote, Necessary to suspend the writ of habeas corpus for the public safety, end quote, then the president authorized general scott to do so. In Lincoln's words, scott could quote, arrest and detain without resort to the ordinary processes and forms of law such individuals as he might deem dangerous to the public safety. End quote.
1: In that letter to Winfield Scott, the president had not issued a sweeping order, but rather a directive confined to that single imperiled route between the North and the nation's capital. But still, by rescinding a basic constitutional protection, Lincoln had made a controversial, momentous decision. And to understand just why Lincoln's decision was so controversial and momentous, the next thing we probably need to do is explain just what the deal is with this writ of habeas corpus, and why it's so important.
0: Depending on what source you're checking, habeas corpus is a Latin term that literally means either you have the body or bring the body. But habeas corpus is known as the Great Writ of Liberty because it's an order given by a judge that requires authorities to bring prisoners to court and specify the crimes for which they are being held. Basically, habeas corpus forbids authorities to hold citizens indefinitely without being charged. This protection against tyranny was one of the few that appeared in the original U.S. Constitution prior to the Bill of Rights. It's specifically addressed in Article One of the Constitution where it's written that, quote, The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. End quote.
1: So the writ is such an important civil right because if it's suspended, a person can be arrested and detained indefinitely without being charged with a crime or even told why they're in custody. Prior to the Civil War, the government's right to suspend habeas corpus had rarely been exercised. The last time had been back in 1815, when General Andrew Jackson suspended it after the Battle of New Orleans. And in 1861, at first, Abraham Lincoln seemed reluctant to wield this power. In fact, he indicated he would sooner subject Maryland's cities to bombardment than to suspend habeas corpus. But after soliciting the advice of his cabinet, as he typically did on important issues, and also seeking the advice of men outside the government whose opinions he respected, the president made his decision, and on April 27th, he suspended the writ anywhere near or along the route between Washington and Philadelphia.
0: Several attention-grabbing arrests followed the suspension of the writ, including the chief of police of Baltimore, But the arrest that would prove most significant was John Merriman's, which, as we've already mentioned, occurred on May 25th. After being taken to Fort McHenry and jailed there, Merriman quickly sought release by petitioning the Federal Circuit Court for a writ of habeas corpus. It just so happened that the senior judge in that circuit was none other than Roger Taney, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. That's because back in the olden days, each Supreme Court justice was responsible not only for sitting on the high court, but also administering one of the federal circuits of appeal. The justices' circuit court duties, often called circuit writing, were performed when the Supreme Court wasn't in session. Anyway, it just so happened that Taney's responsibility was the Fourth Judicial Circuit, which included Baltimore, where Fort McHenry was located.
1: We've met Roger Taney previously on the podcast, of course, most notably with regard to the Supreme Court's infamous Dred Scott decision back in 1857. But here, with the case of John Merriman's arrest and detention, Taney immediately recognized the gravity of the issue that he was called upon to decide. Since the Constitution mentions the writ of habeas corpus only once to provide for its suspension, but critically, the document doesn't specify just who has the authority to suspend the writ, at issue with the Merriman case was the question of whether the President of the United States has any power under the U.S. Constitution to suspend habeas corpus. That was an unprecedented question, since no previous President, at least while he was serving as President, had ever attempted to suspend the writ and the issue had never previously been litigated in any court.
0: But on May 26th, the day after John Merriman's arrest at Hayfield's, his brother-in-law and family lawyer hurried to Roger Tawney's home in Washington to petition him for a writ of habeas corpus for Merriman. In his book, Fateful Lightning, A New History of the Civil War and Reconstruction, Alan Gelso writes that, quote, Roger Taney, who was still sitting as the Chief Justice of the United States despite his 84 years, was deeply antagonistic to Lincoln. He was convinced that Lincoln had no authority to repress secession, and he now looked for an opportunity to stymie Lincoln's self-proclaimed war powers by contesting the suspension of the writ in Maryland. Taney got his chance in the case of John Merriman."
1: Acting in his capacity as the justice designated to serve as circuit judge for the Fourth Judicial Circuit, Roger Tawney promptly issued a writ of habeas corpus for John Merriman to be delivered to his district courtroom in Baltimore. And so on Monday morning, May 27th, Tawney took his seat on the bench in the district courtroom in Baltimore's Masonic Hall, signaled that he was ready to proceed, and the clerk called the case of ex parte Merriman.
0: Ex parte is another Latin term. It means with respect to or in the interest of one side only.
1: Yep. All right. So anyway, we have Tawny sitting there, and the courtroom is packed, and there's also a crowd outside, since word has spread that something important is going to happen, but Brevet Major General George Cadwallader, the commanding officer at Fort McHenry, has refused to honor the writ. Instead, he sent his aide, Colonel R.M. Lee, with a letter advising Tawney why he hasn't brought Merriman to the court that morning. And here I think it's worth quoting at some length from Brian McKinney's excellent book, The Body of John Merriman. Quote, The letter was couched in respectful yet defiant terms. Lee now proceeded to read it to the judge. Cadwallader's letter said that Merriman had been arrested and confined in Fort McHenry for various acts of treason, and for avowing his purpose of armed hostility against the government. Cadwallader was duly authorized by the President of the United States, in such cases, to suspend the writ of habeas corpus for the public safety. The letter asked Tawney to postpone further action in the case until the General could receive instructions from the President. Having finished reading, Lee handed the letter to the clerk. The Chief Justice was not impressed. "'Have you brought with you the body of John Merriman?' he asked Colonel Lee. "'I have no instructions except to deliver this response to the court,' Lee answered. "'The commanding officer declines to obey the writ,' Tony continued. "'After the communication I have made,' Lee said, "'my duties and powers are ended.' "'General Cadwallader was by that writ commanded to produce the body of Mr. Merriman before me this morning,' Tawney said, that the case might be heard, and the petitioner be either remanded to his custody or set at liberty if held on insufficient grounds. But he has acted in disobedience to that high writ, and I direct that an attachment be at once issued against him, returnable before me here at twelve o'clock tomorrow. End quote.
0: And with that, Tawny issued a contempt citation against General Cadwallader. To quote from McGuinty again, Quote, Telegraph wires buzzed with reports from the Baltimore courtroom and newspapers across the country were soon emblazoned with the story. The old jurist had directly challenged the President of the United States with a judicial order, laying down a challenge more direct and defiant than any ever seen in the history of the Republic. It was a sharp and determined challenge that would be remembered long after the guns of the awful war, then racking the nation, fell silent, for the constitutional issues it raised were troubling, and they had no clear or simple answers. More than a century and a half later, the issues would still vex lawyers, judges, constitutional scholars, and historians of the Civil War. End quote.
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Immediately after Tani issued that contempt citation against Cadwallader, the U.S. Marshal who carried it to Fort McHenry was refused admittance. Frustrated by such defiance, and yet keenly aware of the significant constitutional issue revolving around the controversy, Taney availed himself of the only option left to him. He wrote a scathing opinion denying the president's authority to suspend habeas corpus, and directed the record of the entire affair be sent to Lincoln, instructing the president to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed, end quote.
0: In his ruling, Taney insisted that only Congress could suspend the writ, and he based his argument on the fact that the suspension clause is found in Article I of the Constitution, which deals with the powers of Congress, not the president. Taney cited several precedents to support his position. But he also conveniently ignored other points that didn't support his position, such as the fact that at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, the Suspension Clause was initially placed in the article dealing with the judiciary, and it was eventually only moved to Article I by the Committee on Style. And there was no denying the Constitution did not actually specify which branch had the power to suspend the writ.
1: But nevertheless, Taney chose to disregard what just about everyone else acknowledged, that is, that the question of who has the power to suspend the writ of habeas corpus was a matter of legitimate debate, and instead he confidently, or arrogantly, declared that he thought it was, quote, one of those points of constitutional law upon which there was no difference of opinion, end quote. It's quite amazing that Taney could so arrogantly ignore the fact that there were indeed many different opinions in the matter, and instead he simply acted as if he were a schoolmaster whose duty required him to correct an errant pupil. But Roger Tawney's behavior really shouldn't be surprising, since he showed the same arrogance back in 1857 in the Dred Scott case, with his willingness to make an aggressively expansive pronouncement which reflected his personal sympathy for Southern interests.
0: Because Taney happened to be the Chief Justice, confusion has surrounded his opinion in the Merriman case, depicting it as a pronouncement of the Supreme Court. But officially, Taney only had the opportunity to act on the matter because it occurred in Maryland, and because he happened to be the justice designated to ride the circuit in that particular federal district, the 4th Judicial District. Taney's opinion in Ex parte Merriman was printed in the July 1861 issue of the American Law Register and reprinted in many newspapers and various pamphlets across the country, but it was never printed in the United States Reports, where decisions of the full Supreme Court are preserved for posterity.
1: In any event, Taney had no power to enforce his ruling, and Abraham Lincoln refused to obey it. Actually, it's interesting that Taney, in his written opinion, blasted the president, but he never actually issued an order directing anyone in the chain of military command to set John Merriman free. After all of Taney's imperious blustering, he had chosen not to issue a court order which required that Merriman be released from Fort McHenry or restored to freedom. Taney simply proclaimed in his opinion that Congress, rather than the president, had the sole authority to suspend the writ, and he admonished the president to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed, end quote. So that means it's not really correct to say that the president refused to obey Taney's ruling, since in the end, there was really no court order for Abraham Lincoln to disobey.
0: But Lincoln did take up the gauntlet that Taney had thrown down, Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer through and through, and his decision to suspend habeas corpus was not reached lightly, and so the president used his message to the special session of Congress on July 4, 1861, to respond to Taney's challenge. In that message, Lincoln noted, without mentioning Taney's name or position, that as president he had been admonished, quote, that one who is sworn to take care that the laws be faithfully executed should not he himself violate them, end quote. But Lincoln insisted that he had not violated the law. Confederates in Virginia and secessionists in Maryland had threatened the security of the nation's capital, whose capture would likely have brought down the government. Surely, Lincoln argued, that crisis met the constitutional condition for suspending the writ.
1: The president then noted that, quote, Now it is insisted that Congress, not the executive, is vested with this power, but the Constitution itself is silent as to which or who is to exercise the power. And as the provision was plainly made for a dangerous emergency, it cannot be believed that the framers of the government intended that in every case the danger should run its course until Congress should be called together, the very assembling of which might be prevented, as was intended in this case, by rebellion. Quote. But even if Roger Taney was right that the Constitution gave only Congress the power to suspend habeas corpus, Abraham Lincoln acknowledged a higher constitutional duty to do whatever was necessary to preserve, protect, and defend the nation. As James McPherson points out in his book, Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, quote, A master of metaphors designed to make complex concepts clear to laymen, Lincoln used the analogy of a surgeon who amputates a limb to save a life. Looking back in 1864 to the early weeks of the war, he asked, Was it possible to lose the nation and yet preserve the Constitution? By general law, life and limb must be protected, yet often a limb must be amputated to save a life, but a life is never wisely given to save a limb. I felt that measures, otherwise unconstitutional, might become lawful by becoming indispensable to the preservation of the Constitution through the preservation of the nation. Right or wrong, I assume this ground, and now avow it. Here was the core of Lincoln's concept of his war powers as commander-in-chief. His supreme constitutional obligation was to preserve the nation by winning the war. Any measures necessary to achieve that purpose overrode lesser constitutional restrictions. Or, to quote a modern constitutional scholar, "...a part cannot control the whole to the destruction of the whole." Quote. So Lincoln looked at the suspension of habeas corpus which, by the way, he always viewed as a temporary wartime measure, but he looked at the suspension of the writ as akin to amputating a limb in order to save a life. In other words, during the war, he, as president, would set aside that one civil right in order to preserve the Union. To Lincoln, it defied common sense to suppose that losing the war and seeing the nation break apart was an acceptable price to pay for the preservation of one civil right, especially when the Constitution actually provided for the suspension of that specific privilege during a time of extreme crisis.
0: Faced with an unprecedented crisis centering on the very survival of the Union, Abraham Lincoln defied Roger Taney's opinion in Ex Parte Merriman because Lincoln argued such a narrow ruling with regard to presidential power was hopelessly inadequate to meet the extreme danger threatening the nation. As Lincoln famously wrote, if the union was breaking apart, quote, are all the laws but one to go unexecuted and the government itself go to pieces, lest that one be violated, end quote.
1: Abraham Lincoln refused to believe that the framers of the Constitution would not have endorsed his efforts to preserve the Union. He argued that the Constitution merely located the suspension clause among the articles describing the function of Congress. It did not actually specify who had the authority to do the suspending. And in the spring of 1861, since Congress was not in session at the moment of crisis, Lincoln saw no reason why he should sit on his hands and allow the situation in Maryland to threaten the security of the Capitol. He decided it was foolish to dither over legal niceties when determined action to prevent Confederate sympathizers from sabotaging the Union war effort lay fully within what he considered to be his war powers as commander-in-chief. The President argued that, quote, "'Ours is a case of rebellion.' In fact, a clear, flagrant, and gigantic case of rebellion, and in such cases, men may be held in custody whom the courts, acting on ordinary rules, would discharge. End quote. In the end, as Alan Gelzo points out in his book *Fateful Lightning*, Abraham Lincoln ignored Roger Tawney, and at least with regard to Tawney's showdown with Lincoln and the Chief Justice's attempt to curb the president's war powers. The case of Ex Parte Merriman thus became a dead letter.
0: Roger Taney's attempt to use Ex Parte Merriman to curb the President's war powers may have failed, but the Chief Justice's showdown with Lincoln was still an important chapter in the story of the Civil War and in the larger story of American history. In his book, Lincoln and Chief Justice Taney, Slavery, Secession, and the President's War Powers, Professor of Law James F. Simon argues that, quote, "...even with Taney's lopsided analysis, there was much to admire in his opinion. It was, after all, a clarion call for the President and the military forces under his command to respect the civil liberties of Americans." General Cadwallader's imprisonment of John Merriman and his refusal to hand him over to the civil courts raised important constitutional questions. If Taney's opinion could have been read without reference to the furious sectional battle that was tearing the country apart, it would surely have commanded respect. But how could his opinion be read without reference to the dire situation facing Lincoln and the Union forces? Taney's refusal to place the Merriman case in its historical context gave his opinion a gauzy, surreal quality. Nowhere in his opinion did the Chief Justice suggest that Lincoln was dealing with a major insurrection in which 11 states had seceded from the Union and secessionists in other states like Maryland posed a significant and immediate threat to the nation's security. End quote.
1: Southerners had been delighted with Roger Taney's decision back in the Dred Scott case, but now in 1861, despite its gauzy, surreal quality, ex parte Merryman elevated the Chief Justice to a new level of celebrity in the South. In the eyes of Confederates and secessionists, Taney had once again shown himself to be a champion of Southern interests. Well, Taney won't live to see the end of the sectional conflict he so deplored. He'll die in October of 1864 at home in his bed in Washington, D.C. At the time of his death, he'll have served more than 28 years as Chief Justice. The case also elevated John Merriman to fame, well, at least in certain circles, Uh, for throughout the North, he was viewed as an infamous character. Uh, But anyway, on July 12th, by order of Secretary of War Simon Cameron, Merriman was turned over to the custody of the U.S. Marshal, and one day later he appeared before District Judge William F. Giles with regard to the treason charge that was then hanging over his head. But in the circuit court that day, July 13th, Merriman was admitted to bail in the amount of $20,000, and he was thus free to return home to Hayfields.
0: Roger Taney stubbornly refused to let Merriman's treason case go to trial, and eventually the grand jury's indictment was dropped in 1863. The next year, in 1864, when his sixth son was born, Merriman named the child Roger Brooke Taney Merriman. In 1870, John Merriman was elected Maryland's state treasurer, Four years later, he was elected to the Maryland Legislature. He died at home at Hayfields in 1881 at the age of 57.
1: More than a century and a half after the epic showdown between Chief Justice Taney and President Abraham Lincoln, the core issue of the Merriman case remains unresolved. During the Civil War, Congress supported Lincoln's action— even while it carefully avoided the central question of precisely who gets to suspend habeas corpus. The fact remained, however, that the President had suspended the writ, and Congress didn't act to restrain him, nor did the Supreme Court rule the suspension unconstitutional.
0: But still, a persistent and legitimate question is whether Abraham Lincoln violated civil liberties during the Civil War. And admittedly, the president did seem to worry little about curbing civil liberties to protect the war effort. While his letter to General Scott in 1861 suspended habeas corpus only in a narrow area, Lincoln issued two additional sweeping proclamations suspending the writ in September 1862 and September 1863. Both of those proclamations were applicable throughout the country. The President's orders made it nearly impossible to distinguish between dissent and disloyalty, though, and widespread arrests followed. Thousands of arrests, actually.
1: Abraham Lincoln took no pleasure in the exercise of his extraordinary powers, regarding it as a necessary evil, but he nevertheless firmly believed that the power he exercised during the war was given to him by the Constitution. He took the actions he took because he believed that given the grave crisis facing the nation, it was right for him to do so, and Abraham Lincoln's belief wasn't shaken by the fact that Roger Taney believed otherwise. In The Body of John Merriman, Brian McGinney says, quote, "...for all the suspensions that he proclaimed and all the arrests that he authorized, Lincoln maintained a belief from the beginning of the war in the rights of the American people. He cautioned his officers to proceed carefully." To use military arrests sparingly and to exercise discretion whenever and wherever they suspended habeas corpus. Of course, there were abuses, inevitably so in a war of such awful dimensions. Quote.
0: With regard to those abuses, it's often quoted widely in Civil War books that in the North there were 13,535 military arrests of civilians during the war. Neo-Confederates and those who just generally have an unfavorable view of Abraham Lincoln like to imply that most of those arrested were political prisoners. That is, they were people arrested for expressing political views opposing the Union war effort.
1: But first, with regard to that 13,353 number, when historian Mark Neely Jr. set out to research Lincoln's record on civil liberties, he found that that number is probably actually too low... What Neely discovered was that the number of civilians arrested by the Union military during the Civil War was actually far more than 13,535. He found that most of the arrests, however, took place in the border states of Kentucky and Missouri. Some of the detainees were civilians from Confederate states, and most were suspected of such crimes as desertion, draft evasion, smuggling, defrauding the government, and other activities that hardly qualify them for political prisoner status. The number of Northerners arrested for expressing political views opposing the war was much smaller than 13,535, perhaps less than 1% of that number.
0: By the way, Neely's research into all of this can be found in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Fate of Liberty, Abraham Lincoln, and Civil Liberties. And in a future episode about Copperheads, we'll talk about some of those arrests by the military that did involve those who expressed political views opposing the Union War effort.
1: But before we bring this particular episode to a close, Tracy and I feel we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that while there are people today who like to portray Abraham Lincoln as a tyrant who violated the Constitution and trampled on civil rights... Those Lincoln bashers conveniently ignored the fact that Jefferson Davis did precisely the same thing. It should be noted, however, that unlike the blanket authority granted to Lincoln in 1863, the Confederate Congress gave Davis only limited power to suspend the writ. In February 1862, the Confederate Congress sanctioned temporary suspension of the writ in part to stymie organized resistance to conscription. The writ was suspended again in September 1862, but angry public opposition in the South soon caused the decision to be reversed. In February 1864, Davis asked for, and was granted, authority to suspend the writ for treasonable offenses— But once again, the power to suspend habeas corpus was short-lived due to public outrage. After that, the Confederate Congress didn't grant any of Davis's subsequent requests for authority to suspend habeas corpus. But even at times, and in the areas of the Confederacy where the writ was not suspended, military arrests still occurred imposition of martial law by some Confederate generals in parts of Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Georgia drew fierce protests. Students of the Civil War have traditionally believed the Confederacy generally respected the civil rights of its citizens. But Mark Neely Jr., again, uh, has found evidence that during the war, the Confederate military arrested and detained more than 4,000 civilians. And those are only the documented cases from surviving records, so the actual number was certainly much higher. In Richmond's Castle Thunder Prison, an entire floor was reserved for civilian political prisoners. But all of that's to say that while Jefferson Davis liked to assert that the Confederacy protected individual rights More scrupulously than did the Lincoln administration, that claim was most likely just the Confederate president blowing smoke, trying to gain the sympathy of the border states and foreign observers.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time, as y'all might be able to guess, is The Body of John Merriman, Abraham Lincoln, and the Suspension of Habeas Corpus by Brian McGinty. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
1: Also at the website, you can find a link to the podcast's Facebook page, where we enjoy hearing from quite a few of you guys each week and where we post just uh, different stuff each week we think you guys might find interesting. So don't forget to check us out on Facebook and be sure to like the podcast while you're there. We're creeping up toward 500 likes, which will be pretty cool when that happens. Anyway, before we close, we want to be sure to give a shout out to Henry W. from California for his donation this past week. So thanks for that support, sir.
0: And thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. With the next episode, we'll head out to Missouri to see what's been happening there since the start of the war. So that'll be next week. But until then, take care.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.